It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome back to the show someone we've had on the show a couple of times and always a pleasure to have him back, Frank Sheck. He is a film critic and political columnist for The Hollywood Reporter. Frank, welcome back. Thank you, David. Nice to be back. Well, it's exciting uh, down there south of the border for us as we watch the unfolding and the very soon upcoming presidential election on November 3rd. Yeah, can you imagine what we're going through? <laughs> Why don't you tell us about it? <laughs> it's nerve-wracking, David, nerve-wracking. Okay. And and I, I know every minute, every day changes. What's the latest? Well, the latest is, by every conceivable metric, it looks like Joe Biden is going to win the election but Democrats are too afraid to say it out loud because they're still <laughs> suffering from post-traumatic stress from the last election. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's understandable, I guess. And, you know, unfortunately, as you well know, it's not decided by popular vote, yes. which is a foregone conclusion. And, you know, Biden is ahead in virtually every swing state. He's t- essentially tied in Ohio. Uh, and he's ahead in some other states as well that they never thought he would be. Hmm. But it's still, you know, within the margin of error in some states. And uh, nobody is counting their chickens. Hmm. Well, before we get to some of those swing states and some of those numbers that look that are looking like uh, it could be the Democrats, um, the last uh, pres- presidential debate, uh, wh- what were your thoughts that came out of that? Well, you know, Donald Trump uh, apparently either took the um, advice of the people in his campaign or he was on some kind of medication because he was clearly, um, by his terms, more restrained, mm. more resembling a civilized human being. So he came off better. Mm-hmm. Um, if you actually listen to what he had to say, he didn't. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's a whole different story. And Joe Biden held his own, did not make any major gaffes. The only misstep he made was talking about transitioning away from oil and fossil fuels, mm-hmm. which Trump clearly pounced on, yep. and which is providing him some fodder in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Texas. But in the meantime, Biden has kind of contained the damage. Uh, And the reality is most people in this country, you know, want to make that transition anyway. I don't think it's going to have a major effect, but it was an unforced error. You mentioned Texas there. Some of the some of the numbers I'm looking at, it still shows Biden is leading in in Texas. Is that sound right? Uh, depending on the poll, he's either tied or, I mean, the, the different polls say different things. Mm. He's definitely in contention. Mm. And the fact that during the last week of the campaign, he's going to be campaigning hard in Georgia and Texas mm. uh, is just indicative of the possible wave election that could be coming. Right. 
I mean, nobody, nobody thought. I mean, Georgia obviously has been on the cusp for a while, but because of voter suppression and other things, Mm -hmm. it hasn't made it there yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they also have two very important Senate races coming up. So Biden is definitely in the running. I doubt he'll take Texas. If he did, uh, that would be pretty amazing. But, Mm. you know. We can't get too carried away. Is it surprising to you, though, that he's still in contention in that state at the moment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, going back to the to the debate, uh, you had mentioned uh, about uh, what Biden had mentioned about uh, going getting off of fossil fuels eventually. Uh, Trump, of, of course, the comment he made about being the least racist person in the room. Uh, how did that come across? Well, it's a good thing Biden wasn't drinking a glass of water at the time because he would have done a spit take. Uh, you know, what What can you say? I mean, Trump has done, you know, more for black people than anyone with the possible exception of Abraham Lincoln. How can right. he argue with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, in some ways, I guess <laughs> he chose his words wisely. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a ridiculous comment. Uh, he's working very, very hard for the black vote, and he's getting more than he did before, mm. but nowhere near enough. Mm. Now, now, if we look at uh, at the swing states for for what what are the swing states that need to be focused on? Well, actually, right now it's kind of coming down to one state: Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Mm. That seems where it's all going to coalesce. I mean, there are so many different um, parameters to the electrical electoral map. If if amazingly Biden could win Florida, then it's kind of game over. The problem with Pennsylvania is that they do not start counting their votes, including all the early voting, mail-in voting, until election day, which means they will not have the count finished um, by election night, mm. unless you know there's a dramatic, dramatic lopsided victory on one part or the other. Right. So that's a situation where it's possible that election day could stretch out into election days or election week. But obviously, Ohio is very much in play. Wisconsin is very much in play. Those are the major swing states. Uh, what about the mail-ins and, and those kind of things? Uh, that was something that had been talked about. Is that still an issue? Well, there has been more early voting and mail-in voting this year than ever before, which shows you it's – two, it's re, I think it's two things. It's, it's obviously people are frightened of voting in person because of uh, coronavirus. Mm. And there is a wave of voter enthusiasm on both sides mm. that is, I think, it's certainly unmatched in my lifetime. Now, mm. what that means in terms of the vote, it's hard to say. Apparently, the preponderance of early voting has been on the Democratic side. That doesn't mean the Republican voters can't catch up. Uh, clearly, Trump had urged people, his voters to vote in person to vote on election day. Mm. So a lot of them might be holding back and there could be this wave of Republican leaning voters on Mm. election day, but that remains to be seen. And the problem with waiting until election day is people could get sick. 
there could be horrible weather. They could go to the polls and see a five-hour line and decide it's not worth it. Mm. Trump could be so far down in the polls that they decide their vote wouldn't matter. Mm. You know, um, a vote banked early is far more valuable than a vote you're hoping will come in later. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that voters uh, are coming out both sides. Uh, what is the what is the sense in in the states at this time in that in that divide that we've seen, you know, lately. Is it, you know, I, I, I'm just wondering about the, the, how, how people are getting along. I guess that's what I'm asking. How are people getting along in the States these days? Well, we're not getting along too well. <laughs> we're, we're, as, we're as close to a civil war mm. as we've ever been since the civil war. Mm. And, you know, it's, not even so much red states and blue states as it is an urban versus rural divide. The problem for Trump is that the suburbs, which used to be a fairly dependable Republican voting bloc, have dramatically moved away from him. So he's losing the urban vote and and the suburban vote, and he's counting on rural votes and they're very passionate about him, but the numbers may work against him. Mm. You know, I heard a comment the other day from uh, from an observation from a Canadian living in the states, uh, but for for Canadians living in Canada, as you know, we we have a three party system, at least three major parties that that are up against each other, and um, was talking about the the situation in the states in that how it's different down there that divide that um and you just kind of alluded to it there you said it's it's urban and rural and and this person took it down to almost a neighborhood level in that you you almost live in a neighborhood where everyone is you know a, a republican or or a democrat and and so you don't you don't have that mix like we do here where in neighborhoods you might have you know the three different party people voting for three or different parties and they're all living on the same street. It's, it's no big deal. The election happens, you vote, you might see signs coming up and then it's, you know, it goes back to normal. But is that the sense you get down there as well? Well, first of all, I would say you guys have an urban versus rural divide as well, not nearly as polarized as us. Um, you know, so far you, you haven't broken out into violence over there for the most part, but, um, Yeah. I mean, the problem is people are now living near other people who think like they do. Mm. So you don't get exposed to other ideas. You don't get the opportunity to kind of uh, break bread with people who have different political beliefs. And that's just adding to the polarization. Mm -hmm. And I live in Manhattan. So, Mm. you know, I don't run into a lot of Trump signs around here. I do not run into a lot of Trump voters. Everyone I know thinks politically mostly like I do. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show and have back on the show Frank Sheck. He is a film 
critic and political columnist for The Hollywood Reporter. We've had him on the show a few times before. Today we're talking about the upcoming uh, election in the United States on November 3rd. And it's a pleasure to have Frank back here talking about this. Um, Frank, do you see any major concerns as we get into the last week or so of, of the election uh, for either one of the two parties or leaders? Well, I think the major concern has already been made very clear. Donald Trump has already said that he will not accept the results of the election if things don't go his way. Mm. So, you know, what people are very afraid of is a close election that will be bitterly contested, that will be fought in the courtrooms and God forbid, on the streets. Mm. And there's real potential for a constitutional crisis. There's Mm. real potential for some anarchy. Now, the way the numbers have been running have made people a little more calm about that possibility, but it still very much exists. Um, And, you know, you're actually faced with the possibility that you have a president who gets voted out who's just going to say, well, I don't accept those results. I'm not leaving. Mm -hmm. And there's no real mechanism in place for how to handle it because it's never come up before. So we're all flying by the seat of our pants and we're all, you know, I I think both sides are desperately hoping that the election is decisive Mm -hmm. one way or the other. The problem is both sides are also thinking of the election in apocalyptic terms, meaning Mm -hmm. that if, the other side wins, the country is ruined. One side believes that if, uh, well, you know, the Democrats believe that if Trump wins, then we're heading toward totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans are thinking that if Biden wins, we're heading toward socialism. <laughs> One might be a little more exaggerated than the other, I would maintain. But, you know, that fear is there. Yeah. And that's what's made this election so cataclysmic if you look back uh, prior to trump's uh, election uh and winning the last election i can't i can't remember that far back (laughs) okay (laughs) well um i'm just wondering what what the situation was if you can remember what was the what was the the feeling or the sense in 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 the states at that time in terms of what you just described was that there You know, the polarization has been accelerating for probably a couple of decades, mostly because the Republican Party has adopted scorched earth tactics Mm. to politics. Um, But yet there was still a veneer of normalcy. Mm. That all changed with the candidacy of Donald Trump. Mm And then the election of Donald Trump, which, as so many people have said, basically constituted a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Mm. Now, once he got elected, people thought, well, you know, he'll calm down. He'll grow with the job. He'll change his demeanor. Mm. Not only didn't he, but he doubled, tripled down. He was much worse than anyone could have anticipated. And now there really virtually is no Republican party anymore. It's the Trump party. Mm. And the big question, if he gets defeated, 
is what happens to that party then? Mm. Do they kind of pretend that the last four years were an aberration and go back to their traditional conservative, minimal government, low taxes, you know, free trade policies? Or do they continue the nationalistic, jingoistic um, party that they have morphed into? And uh, if that second scenario happens it's going to be very scary mm. unfortunately we we are stuck with two parties mm. um you know one of the, one of the different things about this election from the last election is that then we had third party candidates who actually made a difference mm. uh, they didn't score huge numbers but when you consider that trump won by essentially about eighty thousand votes in a few swing states they definitely had an impact. Mm. This year, there are no third party candidates that are registering in the public consciousness at all. Mm. So it's a binary choice. Mm. Uh, again, going back to, to what you were saying about, uh, about the election, if, if, uh, if it is a, a, a very, very uh, narrow win um, and it's not in Trump's favor, uh, as you say, he he said he won't leave. What are do you know? What the Republican Party itself is thinking uh, in terms of uh, how they feel about his approach to this? You know, uh, some of them, including Mitch McConnell, um, the Senate Majority Leader, have you know said the right things. There will be a peaceful transition. We'll have a fair election, etc. But. You know, I think they're as scared as anybody else. Mm. Um, there are a few rabidly, well, there are more than a few pro-Trump politicians in the Republican Party that would probably back him, you know, mm-hmm. even if he becomes a complete and total fascist. But the more mainstream Republicans, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. I'm not sure they know mm. what they're going to do. Mm. Voter turnout, we, you kind of mentioned that, that uh, this is the most you've seen in terms of the advanced voting. Uh, so the sense is that you are anticipating a high turnout uh, of voters this year? Absolutely. We're already, just in the early voting, We've uh, the number of people is about half of the total vote from the last election. Mm. So, you know, we're going to exceed that easily by 20 to 30 million votes. Wow. You know, there's, uh, I, I recently did an interview with uh, an organization that is based I- in Ottawa, and they uh, they have this artificial intelligence that they've used, uh, they used it with the, the uh, British um, um, uh, uh, Brexit, uh, they used it for the Canadian election, and they are following the American election. It's called Poly. I'm not sure if you heard heard of this or not. But it, know, it, know. it's a daily uh, gives you a daily update on 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 how Polly uh, this AI is following the election, and it's quite interesting. Um, at, at this point, I'm looking at the screen right now, and I was uh, looking at uh, some of the other figures that uh, that are coming out uh, in in the states, uh, in the Guardian, um, and what they're saying as well. But um, it's it's got to Biden at 353 versus Trump's 185 in terms of the electoral vote. The popular vote has got Biden at 55 percent and Trump at 45 percent. 
Uh, from your sense, what does that sound like in terms of the numbers you're hearing? It certainly sounds encouraging to the Democrats. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I just hope your AI system doesn't blow a gasket between now and winter. <laughs> well, it's it just like <laughs> in two thousand one. It, it's not the uh, it's not it's not the voting. It's not the one voting. It's just uh, sort of looking at the numbers. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, there's been talk about even up to four hundred uh, uh, electoral votes for for Biden. Mm. But again, Democrats are too scared to really talk about that because they, you know, they just don't want to jinx it. Mm. Even Biden yesterday, uh, last night on 60 Minutes said, you know, he's too superstitious to um, think he has it in the bag. And that one of the main reasons is because you we've ne- we've never had a politician like Trump. You mm. simply don't know what he's going to do. Right. You know, from what you just said, and I was thinking of this as as you were just saying about about Biden and and being superstitious and afraid to sort of make a prediction, that doesn't sound like rhetoric we would have heard prior to this. The, you know, they they would have been building up themselves, saying and, and trying to get that confidence uh, and and relying on that confidence that it would help uh, voters come over to their side. Um, you know, and maybe get more voters voting for them. Is that fair to say? Well, no, what they're really interested in is making sure that Democratic voters don't get complacent Mm. and that they actually get out and vote, Mm. even during a pandemic, even if they have to wait online for 12 hours like they've had to do in Georgia and other states. That's what the game is now, getting your voters out to vote. So if you say we have it in the bag, people will stay home. Right. So that's another main reason why nobody is saying that. Mm. They want every single person to get to the polls one way or another, however they can, between now and Election Day. Frank, what are your what are your thoughts? Uh, you, you've mentioned a few about about some of the thoughts you have and some of the concerns that the the, the country has as we we come down to the, the final week. Um, what what do you what do you think? What is your sense of uh, what what might happen if it is uh, if it is a, a uh, you know a democratic win? Um, what what is your sense of what could possibly happen? <clears throat> Excuse me. It depends on the degree of the win. Okay. If we have a de- if the Democrats have a decisive victory, it'll be very difficult for Trump to pull any shenanigans. Mm. If it is close, there is simply no predicting what will come down after that. Now, you know, every we like to think that the system is going to work, that he will abide by a vote, but you simply don't know. And and as you say, there's no mechanism to at this point that you know of are people talking about this in terms of what if what if Trump says, I'm not leaving? Oh, they're talking about it for sure, but they're talking about it behind closed doors. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and if you ask if you ask Democratic politicians, they'll say, No, he'll leave, or you know, the military will come in and get him out, Secret Service will come in and get him out. Mm. Um again, we want to think the system is gonna work that way. Um although nobody wants that to happen. Mm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, th- believe me, there's a lot of very 
passionate discussions going on in, in high levels of government. Uh, is there a concern at all about a possible uh, uh, interference in voters come election day for either side? Interference from what oh, foreign preventing them from voting or getting in the way or, you know, those kind of things. Well, you know, Trump has called on his supporters to monitor the polls. Mm. Um, there has been already kind of attempts at voter intimidation, mm. principally by Trump supporters who go to polls and, you know, uh, berate people going in. Um, obviously, we've seen things like these emails threatening Trump voters, uh, threatening uh, voters in Florida if they don't vote for Trump, which um, the intelligence agencies have said uh, come from Iran. Mm. There's a lot of stuff going on. All right. Uh, okay, Frank, we're gonna we're gonna leave it there. I'm just wondering any final comments or words just before we finish up. Yes, there is someone I would very much like to visit in Canada. Is there any way your government could see fit, see fit to let Americans back in? Well, um, once you the- have any pull with the government, please. Uh, I don't blame you at all. Well, thanks for that, Frank. I really appreciate, we do really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Moment of Truth uh, each and every time you do. And we look forward to speaking with you. You know, we, let's, let's, can we plan to maybe speak again uh, shortly after the election? If I'm still living in a free country, absolutely. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. All right, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. That's Frank Shack. He is a film critic and political columnist for The Hollywood Reporter. We've been speaking to him about the upcoming election on November 3rd in the United States. And it's always a pleasure to have Frank. Don't go away. We're going to be right back here with more on Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M. And then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Erin Kelly. She is the CEO of Advanced Symbolics Incorporated, and that is a company based out of Ottawa. And this is a bit of a follow-up interview for us because a couple of weeks ago we had Peter Gombos on. He's the producer of the film Margin of Error, which that documentary film was about Polly. Now, Polly is an AI software program that is at the focus of margin of error, and it has to do with uh, Polly's ability to specifically, I guess now what we're really focused on is elections, and there's a big election coming up, and of course that is the in the United States on November 3rd, and, uh, and so Aaron has kindly agreed to join us uh, because we got the film, we heard all about uh, how it works and some of the things that Polly has been involved with in, in the past, such as Brexit, as well as the Canadian election. And now uh, Polly has her sights set on the American election. So, Aaron, welcome to the show. 
Hi, David. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. So, of course, this all came to our attention, at least uh, for me, was the margin of error documentary that I I was able to see uh, that introduced us to Polly and, of course, how Polly came to be. And, and, and how, uh, polling, I guess, polling, uh, was originally done, as we know, over the phone, door to door, those kind of things. But times have changed drastically. Nobody's at home. Nobody has a, a home phone anymore as they used to have, uh, answering door to door, especially now with the, the pandemic is really difficult. So I guess it's, it's kind of timely that Polly has been able to come forward. And I'm just wondering if you can give us a, a perspective from, from what you understand. How, how Polly and and your team came came to, together to to uh, you know be able to develop this software uh, and where it is now. Well, so you're you're right, David. The 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 core challenge behind Polly was that people don't take surveys anymore. They don't take phone polls. Um, so whereas in the '90s you'd get upwards of you know, 70% of people would take a phone poll. Today, it's less than 10% of the population. So what we're seeing is that that research, that market research is less and less accurate. So the way Polly came together, it's interesting. So it's me and a co-founder, Kenton White, and he and I were both tackling this issue simultaneously. And we actually had different companies and we were coming at it slightly differently. And we decided to put our efforts together in 2016 and the idea, Kenton's a physicist, I have a long background in market research, and the idea was uh, how do we get market research to be as accurate as or more accurate than as any kind of scientific research? So, you know, we do research with drug trials, uh, we do randomized controlled samples of populations, we have repeatability and reproducibility of that research. And this, Kenton uh, was a professor at the University of Ottawa, so he was leading a research team to figure out if we could use social media to, to be that catalyst for getting that more accurate research. And it's not just for market research, but we're doing work now on COVID prediction, et cetera. So we do a lot of work in healthcare. But it's about making sure that we can get accurate information about how people feel and how they behave. Um, and the way to do that is by taking the randomized controlled samples and applying them to social media. So the first iteration of social media listening wasn't scientific enough because it wasn't sampling properly. Like, as you know, people on social media are skewed, right? They're skewed young and they're skewed. In, some platforms have yet more young people. Some platforms have older people. So what you have to do is properly sample those platforms so that you get a balance that reflects the population at large. Okay, I think. <laughs> um, so what's in, really interesting, though, is is that when you started to delve into this, and for instance, uh, I thought it was really fascinating how in the Brexit uh, information that was being followed, that um, Kent, when, when he was uh, putting uh, some information in, uh, there, there was some information that, that didn't really look like it was, it was specific to Brexit, but, uh, it, it had to do with the assassination attempt, I believe. And, and, um, when he took that information out of the mix, it changed the balance or the numbers. And then once he put that it back in, it made it look like Brexit was going to happen. Um, so I, I guess, uh, can you explain more about how Polly looks at at social media because she she looks at at um, social media 
uh, without, uh, without sort of going door to door and knocking on people's doors. She, she's going in there and looking at things. Uh, how does she, how does she do that without, with being able to make sure it's accurate? I guess that's what I'm asking. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and that, and I'm glad you asked that because that gets the key of why we have to properly sample the information because once the information and the participants in the research are properly sampled, you can do, use statistical techniques to do forecasting. So what you just described here, the assassination of Joe Cox, where we said to Polly, imagine Joe Cox was not assassinated. What would the result be? And she said, remain. Now, Joe Cox is assassinated. Exit. So we saw that as a really critical point. And the way we did that was a statistical technique called a counterfactual. A counterfactual is not something that's exclusive to Polly. Researchers in science do this all the time. When you have a proper sample, what, what Polly is able to do, because she can go back in time on social media, mm. uh, she can go back to every point in time. So you can imagine people are, tri- there's trillions of posts a minute. Mm. And, and so we can look at every speech that every politician made. So we weren't just looking at Joe Cox. We were looking, we knew that it had changed in the last three days. And so we went back, we told Polly, look at everything that's happened in the last three days. When did this change? And she saw that just that the change could be attributed to the assassination of Joe Cox. Wow. That's really interesting. Now, is Polly unique in her place in, in terms of AI and, and what she can do in the world? Yes. So we have a patent on how to do this sampling on social media, and we have not seen any other company that is able to do that, that, uh, that has that ability to pull out a group from social media that perfectly represents the population you're trying to measure. Now, for people that aren't familiar with Polly uh, and and haven't seen, haven't been able to see the the film Margin of Error that describes uh, Polly's abilities and what she does, uh, uh, what I do know and what was taken from the film, and I, I think Kent uh, m- mentions this in the film, Polly is intelligent and is AI, but but not uh, um, uh, um, sorry, I'm sentient. Sentient. Not Thank sentient, you. Right? She's not sentient. Um, so, uh, can you, uh, just, just, uh, tell us a little bit more about, about her as a software then? Sure. Absolutely. So what Polly does essentially, is she's a massive pattern recognition machine. So unlike, you know, we hear a lot of, we see a lot of fears in Hollywood that AI is going to cause world war three or go against people or mm. form its own opinions or things like that. And that's a misreading of what AI does or how it works, at least today. And, and I think probably for my lifetime. <laughs> so what Polly does is she, she's a massive pattern recognition machine. So she's doing things that, you know, like, uh, and uh, just on a huge scale because she's taking in trillions and trillions of posts a minute and analyzing them all. So, I mean, if we were capable of doing that, our brains would do the same, but she's, she, and she's looking for patterns. She's not understanding per se what she's doing. Uh, she's programmed to understand that that these words and these phrases or whatever mean this. Like she's able to understand the valence of words and things like that. But it really is a massive pattern recognition machine rather than really understanding what an election is and what Trump's all about. Mm. So now, again, just for simplicity's sake, I'm understanding that that Polly looks at information as you've described 
but not necessarily understanding and not necessarily specific to an event such as the election. Is that, do I, am I understanding that correctly? That's right. So, so is she, it, it, what is she, is it human behavior? What is it that she's really able to, to focus in on and, and sort of get a fix on that helps her describe and get that information so that you're able to understand, ah, this is how this is going to affect, or this is what it really shows us about what people are thinking. Right. So the way you do that is you have to give Polly a hypothesis. Mm. So we start with a null hypothesis. And this is a great way for people even to think about problems. Like when I see all the conspiracy theories like QAnon and stuff like that, mm. that are seem to be getting popularity right now. Yeah. Uh, my, my answer to people or my question to people is always, well, what is your null hypothesis? And your null hypothesis has to be, no, this is not true, right? Uh, no, there's not a, a, the Democrats aren't pedophiles abusing children in basements. So mm. the, the null hypothesis is not true. Now, in order for me to believe that, you would have to bring me credible proof that this is in fact happening. And it's not based on anonymous sources. You know, it's who, who are the people who are speaking? What is their proof? You know, that sort of thing. So it's the same thing for Polly. So the, what we do is we give Polly a null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis for an election, for example, would be the incumbent is going to win. Okay, so Polly, assume Trump is going to win the election unless you get enough credible evidence mm. to dissuade you of that view. Mm. And so what she's doing is she's going out and she is making this assumption. And until she gets enough evidence, and that's her confidence, right? Until she gets that confidence that no, he is not going to win, she continues to hold that hypothesis. Okay. And so what is Polly telling us these days? Well, so, um, and, and it, it depends on which day you ask. <laughs> um, <laughs> things are in flux again today, it looks like. Um, so this is interesting. So after President Trump uh, got COVID, mm. we saw his popularity actually go up. He mm. went up 20 seats. Yeah, that doesn't um, surprise me. Right. And well, you know, at first he went down a little bit, but then as he, you know, seemed to be recovering from it, it went up. Uh, and then he came down again. Uh, mm. so last week he was down, but today we're seeing a rally again. The Republicans are up nine, I shouldn't say seats, but as I'm sending Canadian there, nine uh, votes, electoral mm. college votes. Mm. So still Biden is very clearly ahead, 353 to 185. Now we have a large margin of error there, plus or minus 79 seats, uh, 79 votes because of uh, a lot of states are in flux right now, mm -hmm. but still clearly very ahead. <laughs> but we're, they're up nine. Uh, and we see the attribution for this is uh, Vice President Pence's staff getting COVID. Now you think again, that, wouldn't that be irresponsible? But it, it's, it's showing a rally for the Republicans. We've also, you know, you mentioned the counterfactual, right? The Joe Cox element from mm. Brexit. Mm. We've also built a counterfactual into Polly. We haven't put it up on our website um, because we're still kind of monitoring it, but the counter, so we put a few counterfactuals. Like, so when we build a model, we do, okay, show us the votes, but also what if scenarios, because what we've learned over time is that there's always a what if, right? There's always some sort of wrench being mm. thrown into an election sure. leading up to it. So in this, what, the one model that's looking interesting, one counterfactual we've put in that's really interesting is if, if there is a vaccine this week, now, you'll probably notice that a, a British company just announced today that their vaccine 
you know, they've got a vaccine that's producing really great results and they're mm. about to release it. We put that to Polly and she said, not good enough. Americans want an American vaccine made right. by Americans. Right. So, yeah. Uh, but if there were to be an American vaccine this week, it actually shows that Trump could win the election sure. just based on that. Yep. Okay. So, um, so it's still very much in flux, but right now we're seeing a Biden win. Okay. It's all very interesting. Of course, how does Polly, uh, shape up in terms of what you're seeing? And I'm sure you're, you're, you're following what, uh, American data is showing about, uh, about the election. How does, how do, how do they compare? Uh, well, we're, we're pretty, we're not, we're like everybody else in this particular election. Um, <laughs> we always take pride in when we're the, we're the ones who are being bullish as we have been in the past. We're the, you know, but this time around, I think everybody is kind of saying it's going to, well, not everybody, but I'd say the majority of pollsters are saying it's going to be a Biden win or showing mm. Biden ahead. Mm. Where Polly really gets interesting though is in the days leading up, especially if there is a wrench thrown into it. So I'd say to your listeners, check out the website regularly advanced because she is doing it every day. Right. It, we're, we're basically polling 300,000 Americans every day. Wow. So, and it's up to the minute because it's on social, right. And it's remember a representative sample. So it's just as valid as say a phone poll, probably more so because we've got a bigger sample size. Um, so anything could happen. Uh, right now we are showing what everybody else though is showing, which is Biden ahead. But remember we showed, remain until three days before the Brexit referendum. And then Polly suddenly switched. Right. So any kind of scandal, you know, if Joe Biden looks like he's having a senile moment or, you know, <laughs> there's a vaccine for COVID or something dramatic happens, right. it could change on a dime because the electorate is quite volatile right now. Yes. Aaron, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's been fascinating speaking with you and appreciate you taking the time to join us. I would love to be able to uh, set something up with you post-election to see how the results came in. But also, who knows if we're going to have a clean election and uh, and the readings are going to come back. Uh, you know, we may have more to talk about after that, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that'll be a whole other <laughs> drama for sure. And in fact, just quickly, we do find that questioning the integrity of the election actually helps Mr. Trump. Oh. Or not. Mm, wow. it, it discourages moderates from from bothering you know they mm. think okay why should i bother and you know it's right. probably going to be tainted anyway so wow okay well aaron once again a pleasure <laughs> speaking with you and i thank you once again for joining us on the show great thanks david all right take care you too that's Erin Kelly. She is the CEO of Advanced Symbolics Incorporated. We've been talking to her about this AI software they have called Polly. You can check them out online at Advanced Symbolics Incorporated and uh, see what Polly is doing to follow the uh, election in the United States on a daily basis as those numbers come in. It's been a pleasure speaking with her. We hope to get her back on uh, after the election so we can see how Polly did as well as uh, catch up on things to see. You know, you know, we never know what's going to happen after the election. There may be more to talk about and more for Polly to look into. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Elder Shelley Charles. She is with the Native Women's Association of Canada, or NWAC. 
And the National Indigenous Organization, which it is, is re- representing the political voice of Indigenous women, girls, and gender-diverse people in Canada, inclusive of First Nations on and off reserve, status and non-status, disenfranchised Métis and Inuit, and it's an aggregate for Indigenous women's organizations from across the country. And NWAC was founded on the collective goal to enhance, promote, and foster the social, economic, cultural, and political well-being of Indigenous women within their respective communities and Canada societies. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome Elder Shelley Charles to the show. Welcome. And Shelley, I understand you're here to talk to us about a new grant that the organization was given to bring uh, traditional indigenous foods to urban agricultural uh, centers uh, and rooftops. Is that correct? It is. It's, um, it's a pretty exciting um, project. It's innovative. It's, it's one of its kind um, in terms of actually growing um, vegetables or um, indigenous plants and medicines. Uh, generally, we have something um, called green roofs. And green roofs, I think they're probably about 15 years old. But the green roofs themselves, well, they've been... Um, well, they've been useful in creating longer life for roofs and uh, roofs, and then also less maintenance and shade. The um, the roof garden that we're talking about is very different because we will be able to not only plant indigenous um, foods, but we'll also be able to harvest them. And then do workshops as well, helping to teach women and families um, all about Indigenous gardening, Indigenous knowledge, and also um, medicines and plants themselves. That sounds great. I mean, it's wonderful to, to think that rooftops will be used in this way. There are so many rooftops when you think about it. We've seen, if you look around, sometimes you see in the city uh, rooftops that have trees or greenery on them, but not as many as, as could be utilized. And it certainly is a way to green the planet further, even without being able to cultivate or, or um, harvest the, the products that are going to be grown. Well, yeah, and I think what's really um, interesting about this project as well with the new building is that there's going to be a cafe on site. So the the planning, it is a pilot project, of course, um, always the most exciting projects to be involved in. But the, um, the planning is that the cafe will also have access to the microgreens, fresh vegetables, the edible flowers, and... Um, medicines um, that are needed for that cafe uh, as well. That sounds really, really interesting. So that when you go and, and order your, your coffee and a sandwich or whatever, uh, if you're, if you, you might have some really fresh uh, greens or, or maybe a fresh slice of tomato on that, that sandwich you might be ordering. I think it's, yeah, I, I, that's pretty exciting. You know, when you go to get coffee, you do something like that. And what do you do? You order, well, what I usually do is order like a muffin or something. Mm. Um, and you'll be able to have, this way, you'll be able to have access to sort of a really healthy alternative um, as well. And I understand this is a $1 million grant from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, or AAFC, 
And this is going to be something that is, is going to be in Gatineau. I understand that's where it's going to take place. And this is going to be winterized so that it can be grown all through the year. It is. And that's, um, that's also something that's very different than green, uh, green roofs, uh, of the, of, you know, that you see around the city. There's a couple of green roofs, some, um, for example, in the University of Toronto, um, as well. But yes, very, uh, very different in that we'll be able to also, um, grow in the greenhouse. Uh, the greenhouse is on the rooftop. So generally a green roof will go, it follows the seasons and then it's not usable for the rest of the year, mm. um, for the winter months at least. And then this is going to be, it's going to increase the harvest in the growing season as well. And the initiative is meant to help Indigenous women, as you pointed out a bit earlier, to reclaim uh, traditional knowledge about foods and medicines and, and to be able, to, of course, to pass those on to other generations, as well as boosting the health and wellness and well-being of uh, of communities. Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that you mentioned that because um, there really is a very significant difference when you think of um, Indigenous people, Indigenous women who are living in the community, community setting, rural setting, and then those um, living in the urban centers. So that access to um, growing, access to information about Indigenous knowledge in relation to plants. Um, in relation to gardening um, as well, is going to be significantly significantly uh, increased through this project, and um, it's it's pretty exciting when you think of that because, especially in terms of the pandemic and and being isolated as well, it's another opportunity for learning um, for learning in the outdoors. Mm. And so, as we said, it's going to be in Gatineau, but it's going to be on the uh, Native Women's Association of Canada's Social and Cultural Innovative Centre there on uh, in downtown Gatineau. And, and it's going to open in the new year or start work in the new year? No. So the um, the, the rooftop greenhouse itself will be completed uh, by spring 2021. 20, uh, and it's uh, it's on our promenade, promenade <laughs> de Fortage. <laughs> My friends, is not that... Um, <laughs> Not that good these days. So I think what's really significant just to add um, to that is that there are no other rooftop um, gardens uh, in the region. So it, it's a pilot and a lot of people are going to be um, looking at um, looking at how it rolls out, how the program for, for women and families uh, are designed. Of course, that'll be designed on the seasons. Also, um, a four-directional approach. Mm. And then when we go back to um, the awesome news of the funding uh, that, that we received, something that's really um, important to know about these rooftop gardens and green roofs is that they are um, at the outset more expensive than, you know, just a simple tar or metal roof um, because there has to be some changes to the engineering for mm. weight load, uh, drainage mm. and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Now, I understand this is also going to be in partnership with, of course, indigenous elders, knowledge keepers. There's some, some agricultural experts that will be involved with the project and, and that it's going to be scalable so that you can, you can roll this out uh, to a national uh, level at some point. Well, absolutely. I think that, um, I always believed that and we, we do as well, uh, that partnerships, especially when you're doing innovative pilot projects as well. Partnerships increase um, not only the outreach to all of our communities, but the uh, the success for for the work that we're doing. In our um, in our case, we met um, with elders, so we have an elders advisory committee, and we met last spring and talked in in more detail. And then we've had several meetings since then um, to to really look at what how the project's going to roll out, uh, what can be grown, what sort of uh, workshops uh, can be offered, and um, you know, in keeping with um, um, indigenous knowledge mm. uh, and the restoration of indigenous plants. Right. And I also understand that along with the, the greenhouse and with everything you'll be doing in that regard, it's also going to be incorporated or, or turned into uh, print and digital resources so that people uh, can can utilize those and learn from them and use them elsewhere as well. So the online resources, uh, exactly, the online resources are are really important, especially um, now in terms of of having access to to all of all of the elements of planting, um, putting a garden together, uh, sharing of seeds, harvesting of seeds, uh, but also uh, the re- the online resource will help other groups connect and see what each other's doing and participate. Um, it was interesting this past spring at the, the top of uh, the, the, the pandemic, one of the things that uh, became uh, clear was the um, lack of um, Indigenous seeds um, available. And for anybody that was a gardener um, or is a gardener, and most of my friends are gardeners or in horticulture, some, you know, in some way, um, plant plugs, Indigenous plants, there wasn't anything available. And what was a surprise to me is that we didn't, as Indigenous people, have a, sh- a seed-sharing collective. So seeing all of the things that weren't available to us, um, part of that, um, that was part of that thinking around online uh, resources. Mm. Shelley, is there anything we haven't touched on regarding this project that you think is important to share just before we finish up? Well, I think that um, we can never have enough um, knowledge and access to, you know, to Indigenous ways of learning and, and coming together, increasing our circles and learning, learning, learning from each other. And this type of a, a project does that on so many, so many levels. And I think that it's, it's positive. And it's also another opportunity um, in terms of um, the restoration of Indigenous plants, Mm. Um, another opportunity for us to continue to share that knowledge and 
and share that knowledge in a way that we know um, that thinking to be sharing seven generations into the future. Mm. Nicely said. We appreciate you joining us on the show and telling us about this uh, this great, wonderful project you guys have going. And, and telling us all about it and all the best with it. And, and we look to uh, hear more about this as it rolls out and, and starts to produce some, some uh, actual uh, fruit, you might say, from, from the labor you guys are going to be doing. Um, so thanks again for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Have a great week. All right. You too. Take care. That is Elder Shelley Charles. She is with the Native Women's Association of Canada, or NWAC. And uh, NWAC is a national Indigenous organization representing the political voice of Indigenous women, girls, and gender-diverse people in Canada, inclusive of First Nations, and both on and off-reserve status and non-status and disenfranchised Métis and Inuit people. We've been talking to Shelley about the $1 million grant that they got from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, and they're going to be setting up these uh, greenhouses that are going to be uh, winterized, and they will be growing traditional foods all year round. That's going to be uh, in Gatineau, Quebec, at the uh, NWAC's Social and Cultural Innovative Centre. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.